não acredito que algum ser soberano fez a opção de destinar pessoas a viverem pior ou melhor. O fascínio me levou à vida bandida, o fascínio da rua, o fascínio do beco, da viela, do cara de fuzil que eu via na mão e eu via o mesmo na mão do rango. Quem disse por que tem que ser assim? Destino? Please turn on the lights. Thank you, thank you everybody. I am delighted to be able to introduce this table. Let me start by the second name of this table, which is the one that really thrills me. The self and life trajectories, community responses to crime and violence resisting exclusion and generating positive practices. I loved that. That's what I'm really <laughs> I found very um, too enthusiastic. Uh, but the actual name is Favela Trajectories, Building Responses to Exclusion and Violence. I will be very quickly presenting the speakers for this session. First, Washington Rimas. His nickname is Feijal. He is currently a conflict mediator in the favelas, favelas of Rio de Janeiro. He was involved with the world of crime at an early age when he was 12, and by the time he was 20 years old, he was a chief in command of drug trafficking in the favela of Acari in Rio de Janeiro. He appeared in the film 5X Favela. Nowadays, he works, and in the film before too, Nowadays, he works to provide alternative pathways for youth, giving them alternatives to drug trafficking and crime. Today, he is a speaker of Afro-Riga group, sharing his experience on violence prevention and tackling prejudice. Washington, the floor is yours. Bom dia. Before anything, I would like to thank all partners on behalf of Afro Hegi and uh, Mr. Junior to have participated in such a beautiful project, so clear. I think Sandra and Jacqueline managed to show very well what is our real work of Afro Hegi and Kufa. Uh, a very, very uh, subterranean uh, underground work, and we have to be involved to be able to clarify this work. I would like to thank Mr. Erlanger, who was a great partner. I'm very, very friend, a good friend of your daughter. So you are, uh, don't see this in a bad way. Mr. Celso Taiji, there was a very inspiring person, the coordinator, founder, and secretary of KUFA, a great partner in this work. We're always sharing opinions, ideas. Marlova, who also with much affection deals with us and uh, puts us in these projects, and LSE for having uh, afforded me uh, to be in London in the Queen's 
land because I never thought I would be an example for anyone for having uh, been born in this community and having been involved in drug trafficking so early. So it's clear to me that crime, for me, it was the only alternative. But without any idea, uh, any uh, awareness of the right or the wrong, just with being fascinated of managing to to get the durable consumption products. And uh, you start getting into this thing. You know, sometimes you're a friend, you do a favor, and then you do another favor, and when you see, you're completely involved. And as the film shows, I was involved as a child. Uh, I became a, a chief of trafficking. And uh, I wanted to be a bandit. I wanted to be a villain. I wanted to be a... Uh, uh, I, and I was an executive of, of drug trafficking in my area. And that was a very important uh, role because I was someone in, in the world, someone in life. And people and the media in, in, in the 80s and 90s explored a lot the power and the glamour of the trafficker. And uh, many people thought that uh, the drug dealer was very happy because uh, he was wealthy and women. And the power is something that fascinates people. And when you do not know, you have no knowledge, you think that guy is, is happy. But I know the, the disappointments that I went through, how many friends I lost. And I can tell you, I lost more than 300 friends in my life. And I wasn't, uh, I wasn't killed for, because of uh, divine music, uh, because of God. Because I had been, um, been hit by bullets, and now I'm still here, and uh, I'm fighting for a better Brazil, and particularly us in Rio that have a story of decades of degradation because of violence. So I lived for more than a decade as a drug dealer, a chief drug dealer. And when I left, I went to Salvador in Bahia to try to live a more quiet life. And after three years, the police went uh, to pick me up. Uh, I was in trial. I said a month in a month in prison, and so I had a, I was working, and I had a company, a construction company, and because uh, the, I had to fulfill, I had to comply with the law, I was one month in prison, and then I was uh, acquitted, but I lost money, I lost friends, I lost people uh, that I loved, and this was very complicated, and I almost got back to crime, and I almost... Started creating one of those wars that you see on TV with different factions because of a, an evangelical uh, priest. Uh, he he asked me not to go back to the life of crime. He said that I was lucky because God was with me because all my friends of my generation were in Bangu One, which is a penitentiary in Rio, which is like Alcatraz, and I wasn't. I didn't go to this prison. And even then, I didn't listen, but uh, two weeks later, two friends died beside me, and then I became more aware, and I thought that was not to be not my life. And I accepted help, and then I uh, met uh, Jose Jr., 
and that was like life, uh, love at first sight. Junior could see qualities in me that only the bandits saw. Uh, a person that is charismatic, that managed to express itself well, although I had lived all my life among people with very little education or discernment. And uh, Junior could see that, that I had something, so he gave me the opportunity to represent Afro Hagi and to work in this wonderful project of transformation of lives. I started in Afro Hagi as a mediator of conflict between uh, two between two favelas. It was a favela that had a faction which I belonged to, and with Junior, which is when, when this was this war, Junior uh, came to speak to me and said, "Fejão, I didn't need you for anything, but now I really do need you. Uh, there's an abuse. Uh, people are expelling people." Uh, so I know you're at third command and you were respected. So that's when I saw that I had a mission on earth. And I went to Vigado Geral Favela and I saved people, saved people's lives. And Junior started explaining to me what is a mediation of conflict. It is trying to defend the rights of the innocent people to re- rescue people, and I started rescuing young people from the life of crime and people who were coming out of the prison through a project of uh, employability, and it's a project in which I'm still a collaborator, and uh, I was a, the coordinator of the project told me that I was the one uh, that could, uh, could uh, deal with people, of criminal people, and we are getting a lot of people through your history. And this is, it made me feel very honored. And uh, they asked me to tell my story, to talk to the young people, because to a certain extent, when you, when you have, a, when you're an idol, a bandit idol, uh, and when you, when you said that you had um, motorbikes and jewelry and beautiful women, uh, these people became fascinated. And I managed to involve these people, and Junior started taking me to meetings, to to debates, and uh, he showed me how to do debates, and uh, also international uh, conferences, and he made me represent the group. I was not the most indicated person to be here. It was my coordinator that should be here because the person he is, uh, because he believes in the human being and gives them opportunities. I started in Lisbon in the forum of, in a forum, and then I, I started this uh, project of employability. I went to a conference in the United States, Texas, Alabama, New York. He indicated me to be the the speaker in the forum, and I'm always partic- I've, I've been participating for many years. Some conf- some UNESCO conferences where Maloa also gives me the honor to participate with her. And uh, life has been uh, transforming completely to me until now. Uh, I had also a project with Cacá Diegues, which is the best filmmaker in Brazil, a project called Five Times Favela, which he coordinated with directors of ONGs, sorry, NGOs, 
So there were five directors, uh, and they came to Afroregi to speak to people, uh, to involve people in the filming, and tested people, made people, uh, tested people for the theater as well, audiences for the theater. And I had, uh, and there was a trafficking character, and Luciano de Vidigal, who was one of the directors, invited me to do the theater uh, test, and uh, uh, I went to the film, and I went to Cannes Festival, so I, w- I was in prison, and I went to Cannes. It doesn't work, and I can't translate this because it's very difficult. Um, the film was very suce- successful. I became an, uh, an actor. I also worked in the theater, and today I, I work in art. And today, there's, and now there's a documentary which called Cinco Vezes Especificação, which we talk about communities. And I'm honored today to be a, a transforming human being and to have changed my direction on earth and to give opportunity to people as it was given to me and to help people to transform, to change. And I feel very honored. And I know I'm going to be a good example for my children because I think the family is everything. Maybe if I had had a a father, uh, maybe I wouldn't have become a criminal. Today I have I'm very, very concerned with my children. I always want to be a good example for them, and not only for my children, for children of other uh, parents, of other friends of mine, because uh, criminals uh, usually are um, godfathers of uh, their uh, other of their children. So I have a very great responsibility, and today I'm an example for many people. When I put in Facebook saying that I was ready to go to London, I had 100 comments. Many friends were are bandits, are criminals, and they're putting on Facebook, go ahead, Feijão, have a good time. So I have to be to have a lot of responsibilities. And this group of people are not yet on the right track because they have judicial dependencies, a lot of pending uh, things in court. But many of them came out, uh, stopped, gave up on crime because of my influence. And I thank all of you to give me the opportunity to help. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Washington, for your very moving testimony and for showing your life trajectory and how you have changed, what has motivated you, and especially how you now measure and live by the responsibility that you feel that the change is possible because you are a living proof of it. I'd like now to introduce Camila betman Right? Did I pronounce yeah, it right? That's good. <laughs> okay, well, I like the Batman part. Batman, Batman Helish, born in 1963 in Tehran. She's a British businesswoman. She's a charity leader and an author. You are of Iranian and Belgian origin, as I read here. But she has been living in England since the age of 11 and has founded two charities, The Place to Be and Kids Company, where she and her team care for 17,000 vulnerable children and young people in London. The charity operates from three street-level centres in South Wark, Lambeth and Camden, 
as well as working in 41 inner city schools. Dyslexic, she has to dictate everything and cannot text or use a computer. But after leaving Sherborne, she went on to gain a first in theater and dramatic arts from the University of Warwick. Camila received her honorary doctorate from the Open University in April 2008. Camila, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Um, yeah. Okay, I, I'm loud. <laughs> would you would you prefer me to stand up back there? Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll stand up for you. Uh, what I would like uh, to share with you is uh, my experiences alongside my team of working in some of the most vulnerable uh, communities in London. And I have to start with a sense of deep respect for the children uh, that we work with in terms of the extraordinary courage and dignity that they have. But also, I am very lucky that I have some of the best staff in the world. Uh, our organisation has 600 staff, 11,000 volunteers, and now it reaches out to some actually 36,000 children, which is the latest data. I have 15 minutes, so I'm going to try and use these 15 minutes to add to the information that's been shared with you. As I sat at the back, I was thinking the description that you gave in relation to the favelas is an absolute carbon copy of what's actually going on in some of the deprived inner city environments of England. It's just that the Brazilians have had the courage and the vision to embrace these truths and the political forces in England are yet to discover that courage. But from where we stand, uh, the latest research at Kids Company involving a large cohort of young people and these are not our most disturbed young people, demonstrates that one in five of our children have been shot at and or stabbed. Please don't use a flash. Someone just, yeah. Have been shot at and or stabbed with one in four of their parental figures and immediate family members being shot at and or stabbed. Can you stop? No. No Sorry, I can't. Um, yeah. No, no, please don't use uh, the camera. Just leave your cameras down. Okay. Okay. Um, with one in four of the parental figures and immediate families and friends uh, being shot at and or stabbed. A third of the children who come to our street-level centres don't have a bed they're sleeping on the floor. 18% don't have underpants. 16% don't have socks. 80% rely on their main meal for us, with us. We've got exactly the same constructs of very organized drug dealers who are running children as couriers in the drug trade. And the organization of the running of these children is relatively uh, structured with a sort of command chain going right up to the key characters that are uh, structuring the business. 
It is absolutely in the service of survival. In all the years that I've been working at street level, I have not seen a young person who wanted as their primary choice to be a criminal or a killer, but children have arrived at this point uh, in the service of survival. But what I would like to add to the narrative is this. We ended up creating a service which in effect generated that psychosocial scaffolding that was referred to. And our service is completely holistic, putting together social care interventions, medical interventions, educational interventions, and what I call aspirational interventions. The challenge that our children present with is primarily of one of being so overwhelmingly overpowered by experiences of violence that their whole structure of meaning and social construct is altered as a result of this chronic overexposure to violence. The, the, the sort of adaptation that emerges from this is precisely what Kids Company has been doing research into. The social adaptations are well narrated in the literature of looking at issues of street violence. They present themselves in very much having to adapt to partake in the new power hierarchies that emerge in environments of violence, with the capacity for violence being an incredibly important currency to ensure the survival of the individual, Credit ratings acquired through ability to be violent are essential reputationally so that the individual is perceived as someone who has immense power as a result of their capacity to cause harm, to survive harm, but also to go on and generate money. So what, in effect, tends to happen in chronically depleted communities is that uh, an alternative a narrative of what potency of the individual is about develops. And this is not uh, a, a narrative of flawed morality. It's an adapted morality to the conditions of violence that people are operating in. Those narratives are well known. But what we're now doing research into is this issue of overexposure to chronic violence and the kind of neurophysiological changes that it generates in individuals so that they have to kind of adapt to the environments they're in. And what I would like to throw into the ring is a, another dimension to, to, to this social problem, if you like, which is one in which that ultimately what we know from neuroscience is that the management of personal capacities is one that is afforded to us in our ability to regulate our emotion and energy. We need the front part of our brain, our prefrontal cortex, to calm down and modify the emotional responses that come from deep inside our brain in the limbic system. So when the emotional parts of your brain are firing 
and saying, why doesn't this woman shut up? The, your frontal lobe comes along and modifies it and keeps you pro-social, and your frontal lobe delivers the notion, she'll shut up in a minute because her time will run out, okay? <laughs> so in that way, you regulate your responses. Your ability to be pro-social is given to you by virtue of the attachment relationships that you're exposed to, hence the significance of familial bonds and nurturing and parental figures and so on. That is what get programs your frontal lobe's ability to control you, uh, soothe you and calm you down. But overexposure to fright hormones, the overavailability of fright hormones from your adrenal glands, means that the fright hormones not only enter the emotional centers of the brain and start dysregulating these, they also dysregulate cellular functioning in the body and the fright hormone acts as a super efficient ink storing traumatized events that people are exposed to and delivering them straight to the emotional centers of the brain. The over-memorization of traumatic experiences combined with chronic exposure to conditions of fright results in a dysregulated presentation both at brain and at physiological level, overdriving the individual towards a hyper state of agitation. And when you've got interpersonal conditions of agitation fueled by environmental high risk levels, what you get is a toxic cocktail with acts of violence and the need to prove one as supremely powerful becoming absolute survival tools. Because one of the ways of evacuating tension from the emotional centers of the brain and at cellular level is actually through acts of violence and through proving that you are top dog. Or you can engage in arts and sports activities because exactly the same evacuation function is facilitated as a result of things like dance, drumming, sports, uh, trapeze artistry. Those frozen traumatic memories are processed as a result of narrative, uh, artistic activities, compassionate sharing of stories and so on. So absolutely the arts and sports are providing solutions, but I don't think they realize just how much of those solutions are also producing results on a neurophysiological level. But also, I think society at large doesn't realize just what a time bomb it's sitting on as a result of overexposure of individuals to violence, their then propensity to want to prove themselves as powerful and going on to potentially harm people who would not choose violence as a primary function, forcing the well-cared-for individual who's repeatedly being victimized to upscale their level of violence to survive the perpetrator. And then here is the absolute dynamite of it all, which is epigeneticist's research and suggestion that these environmental demands on the gene expression are potentially resulting in aspects of the gene upregulating itself in expression. So if your genes have the capacity for violence and the capacity for kindness, 
your environmental over-demand on your genes negotiation of violent conditions results in those neuronal pathways and the gene expression that is involved in the negotiation of violence upregulating, and then potentially there is a thought that that alteration in gene expression is getting passed down to the next generation as baseline genetic programming. So if we think climate change is the biggest risk we're sitting on, we'd do well to pay attention to the emotional climate in which our vulnerable communities are nurturing their children. Thank you very much. Thank you, Camilla. Certainly, you pointed several very important things. One that I think that researchers are aware of is that violence is mainstream and we are so exposed and some of them, some of some people are even very, really overexposed, like the kids you are working with and in, and in the favelas. But paradoxically, being so exposed to violence has made it invisible. So we, that's something that we need to deal with during, in our current uh, context. And it is something that has to be taken into consideration in any social transformation that we want to take. And that's what you mentioned, there is a time bomb plus all this neurophysiological side that you brought to the discussion. I, th I thank you for bringing all that information and sharing it with us. And I now would like to welcome Professor Silvia Ramos. She's a senior staff member and has coordinated the Center for Studies on Public Security and Citizenship in Rio de Janeiro. Silvia Ramos is a founder of the Brazilian Interdisciplinary AIDS Association and is a scientific coordinator of the Visiting Researcher Program of the Osvaldo Cruz Foundation in partnership with Rio de Janeiro State Foundation to support research. She works with various non-governmental organizations and has been the advisor to the Deputy Secretary for Public Security in the state of Rio de Janeiro on programs to protect youth, minorities, and the environment. She holds a master's in psychology from the Catholic University of Rio de Janeiro, has researched and published in the areas of youth, police, violence, and media violence. Go ahead. Thank you. Obrigada. Quero primeiro agradecer à Unesco e à Thank you. First of all, I want to thank you. Uh, thank the London School of Economics and Sandra. The London School of Economics is more than a, uh, an important university. It's, uh, it's useful both to Brazil and Portugal, where I did my um, postgraduate this year. And so it is uh, a huge pleasure to be here today in, the, in this library, which, uh, um, which Sandra chose because it's, the, it's got this dome over it. And I'm going to have to mention this in Rio because... The, 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 the theme of this is the life, tra life trajectories in the favelas. And so, so I'd like to, in these 15 minutes, to talk about the, the trajectory of a researcher in a, re a 
in a favela in Rio and the role of the researcher. I decided to give us make a statement with regards to my uh, position with as uh, and how my relationship with the group has affected my trajectory and we we talk about the the youths and their life trajectories but I'd like to talk about mine but uh, working with uh, Afro Hege over these last 10 years I wanted to understand what's the relationship between youth and the police? And so we started to do what is the approach by the police? How how youths were um, were frisked and checked? How do how did they behave towards the youths? We were going through a time in Brazil, which we had the rapper group that gets, that's they they had some of the um, that's very difficult to translate, as you said, <laughs> the camburão, which. Uh, Uh, everybody's got a little bit of the uh, downside, uh, roughly. So, so that this shows that this um, frisking of was a, a reflection on the dictatorship. And so we were doing a research on the way the police approach to this, and we wanted to understand this. So I sought out Afro Hege, and when I understood these uh, various things, which I didn't manage to see, which is the relationship between the police and young people, and from this research, there was a book that was published, that I published, which is called The Suspect Element, uh, which uh, showed the racial aspects in Rio. And then I had contact with uh, Afro Hege, and I wrote a text, and my first contact, which is called a week, an uh, Afro Hague weekend. And this was the first of various documents, uh, articles, and reports which I wrote in subsequent years, developing the project, project a joint projects with the police and the citizen, which was uh, supported by UNESCO, and many, many, many uh, meetings and seminars and workshops and, uh, and dialogues and conversations. And I was surprised uh, uh, looking that in 2003 I wrote that Alfred Haig was uh, an, there was an internal document from Alfred Haig about the seminar and I wrote uh, Alfred Haig has an immense uh, responsibility in the next few years. And in addition to being a reference for many um, young people, it is an inspiration and a guide for the development of other projects And, and for other leaderships in Rio. So I, I'm surprised at how I'd already seen how the important role of Alpha Hege directly with the young people and the importance of this as, uh, as in, uh, people who inspired others, inspirers for the... Uh, and we have to remember, and, and to remember that at that time, we we're talking about 2002, The level of homicide, just so you can have an idea of the of um, violence, it, it was uh, 60%, 60% per thousand. Today, it's 20% per thousand inhabitants. And that's, that's still very high. So 60% per, per thousand was, uh, was really, was terrible. In real, and it was a very difficult uh, time in the relationship between the um, favela dwellers and others between the traffickers and the police. And Subsecretary for Security, Roberto Sá, is here today, and he created this uh, interlude, uh, this relationship, this dialogue, and he, could, and he could tell us uh, what we went through. 
Uh, at that time, the uh, perception that was most important that marked my um, trajectory as a researcher in in my relationship with Kufa and Afrohag and other groups working in the, uh, such as those working with dance, is that they went, they said, they they said, well, leave it to me. I'll talk to people. We are accustomed we are accustomed as researchers to to interpret these. They, they, they would say, let me explain it. We don't need anyone to translate. And as you said in your film, Sandra, this film I hadn't seen before, it shows how you capture this in, a, in an incredible way. This film of the research, it's not a film on, about, it's a film in which they speak. And so I could see that they were saying, Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. I am, I am a, young, a young person from the, sl- from the slums, from the favelas, and so let me speak. Because sometimes we're sociologists, we say, them, they, the young people in, this, in the favelas, and they, they not only spoke to us, but they spoke to Brazil. We, the young people of the people speaking in the first person, and this became uh, lyrics for songs. And there's that famous song, which is a Negro drama, the black drama, which says, I don't read, I didn't see, I live the black, dr- the, the, the black drama. I am the black drama. And so, so it's, there's sociologists that prefer to be impartial, and they said they're financial. We analyze, but you discover that the black and white uh, and and the, the poor is there, but they're not equal. So it's it's a little more than let me speak. Sometimes uh, we make some poor translations of what they say. But to, we must remember today where where we're at. Why? Because a lot of people have forgotten this. Because in the past, the young people in the favelas didn't exist in, in Brazil. Up until the 90s, when there was uh, Alpha Hege, Kufa, and other groups, in, when you talked about young people in Brazil, you thought about the uh, student movement, uh, the organized left, uh, the hippies, the, 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 the rebels, and, and, but there were always um, white youths of the middle class. And, and the, the first time uh, for me as a researcher and the group doing the research was to, uh, was to take the word and to speak in the first person. And this is why we call them, and, and that's why I consider Kufa and Alpha Heg as the new mediators, because they did the mediation, the translation, the bridge between a Brazil that was very little known in that period of time, which is the end of the 80s and the beginning of the 90s, and the world of the favelas, a, 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 a territory that was dominated by armed groups, and they went to this uh, 30. And then and there were the authorities the, and the media. And we needed to understand something in the... In the so Afro Hege uh, had, uh, over a period of years, they had what is called the urban connections, and they needed to understand when the university needed to understand, when the international agency needed to invest and identify and go to the, 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 the favelas, when UNESCO and Globo, the television network, needed to. 
So they went to the favelas to try and understand the favelas by means of these groups, using these groups as, a, as mediators in, the produ- in producing uh, knowledge and an awareness. This um, movement, uh, uh, which was uh, involved in anthropology and sociology in Brazil, and they played an important role in this, they called attention to the to the potentials of uh, sociology, uh, urban sociology in complex environments. And uh, as we say, Sandra and Celso, these are not uh, uh, easy studies. These are, they resist, um, because these are individuals that are not amenable to study, they resist, they deny, and they, and uh, then, then they walk out of it. So these groups are not easy to research, and they're not easy for um, negotiation, not only with researchers, but even cooperation agencies and with the media, yes, and with the government and with the authorities. This is something which our translator, they, they they, they have courage, they have guts. So these young people are difficult, and they see them, and there is no simple solution to this. Many times I've said, and I think I'm right, that among the, the political happenings that are most significant in the 90s was the that related to these groups in the favelas, which the ONGs that were created, the women, uh, the feminist movement uh, that was created in seven, the 70s and 80s, the political I- events that were very important in the civil environment in Brazil in the, during the 90s was the groups in the favelas. And they had various characteristics, uh, mainly these which the researchers identified, which is uh, the need for objectivity. And it's very important to say I and my trajectory in life, because it's important that in the past, in the political agenda of the country, the, 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 the verb was conjugated in the third person. It, it, it was when, when I talk about me, I, uh, this is uh, me, uh, my companion. And all of these, all these groups introduced this. The, per, pros, the pers, prospect of subjectivity in a way that was very important, which, which, which changed the dimension of things. For the researcher, I could understand things better. What do you think of the police? He would say, you know what happened. Last year, I went to um, somewhere. And so he told me exactly what happened, it, telling me his experiences, his individual experiences. And it produced this, this course uh, on the subjectivity. What is important, I think, is of the various new things that uh, they introduced was these groups contributed to, in the last decade, we could create an agenda for Brazil, together with other organizations as uh, observers of uh, favelas. We have others who will speak this afternoon, and other leaderships and artists, and, and they they put it on their um, agenda, the theme of uh, young people in the favelas, uh, drugs, the police, the territories, the turfs, in the, they, collect, they, they placed all of this on the agenda, the marginalization, pre- prejudice. And today, it's a, it's a wave. It's, a, it's, it's fashionable to talk about the, the, perif- 
the outskirts. We were, we were talking about this in the 90s, and so it's important for us to understand the role of this. After, with the help of the TV um, Global, and, and so it's very important for this, um, for one of our guests here who is here today, so that they can see what these uh, groups are doing in projects for children. And, and uh, it's also important to know how many have been rescued from the drug trade, the drug trafficking, yeah, because we can see the, the, um, the, the favelas are changing. The, uh, that is, the favelas where, where 22% of the population live, they're an intrinsic part of the city. The city needs to change. Rio needs to change. And, the, and this is the change that we're seeing right now. I'm, all, I'm getting to the end. How many minutes do I have? One minute. Uh, I have a personal assistant, a personal timer here. Thank you. <laughs> It's impressive that these these groups surprise us. When we we thought that the alpha alpha Afro Hag is, we're thinking that these people were um, young people that were being pursued by the police. So I went uh, and found out from Afro Hag the following that. Now we want to work with the police. That's what the young people are saying. I, who have worked many years studying the police, I, I was quite surprised, hugely surprised. And, and in 2004, there was this project uh, uh, together with the police. I, I, was, I had to abandon my own prejudices uh, with regards to the young people with the police. Uh, I went to the... Um, to the police, and I also saw that the, I, as a as a researcher, had a lot of prejudices and preconceived ideas uh, and uh, frozen ideas about the police, because very often our convictions and beliefs are so based on, on stereotypes, and that's a, a very difficult thing. For us to change this, you have to change your beliefs and your convictions, and that's not easy. So what happens with the BPs that have arrived now? I imagine that Alpha Haig and other groups would be extremely resistant to, to, to these PPs uh, because now the young people in deprived areas and so on, they could have this idea that something is going to change here and we're going to lose our personality. Um, so, but I think that these groups, together with others in, this, in the favelas, are giving re lessons to us as researchers every day of how we can relate to this, how how the co combination between independence and how we can keep the uh, a critical sense of self. There are risks uh, to, to conclude. Alpha Hag does operations uh, that are quite frightening, com complex. Uh, they, they produce support that sometimes um, worry me. And uh, for example, they produce uh, they work with uh, with banks and companies, and phone companies. There, there are risks, and it seems like there are a lot of risks in what they do. But, but there are risks that you could be caught up and lost in in, in the politics and in uh, and the hyper subjectivity becomes something that is empty. There's the risk of not understanding and the hyper marketing of what they do and to lose the. 
uh, a connection with the roots of the of the favelas, the risk of uh, being lost in governmental organizations and uh, and doubtful commitments, and to do things. Uh, and it's important for them to do important things in music, dance, and art, and the- theater. I think Alfred Hegel sh- showed us that it's important to take risks and to continue to produce uh, surprises and uh, bold um, proposals. And recently, I can see that Kufa lo- launched a, a sec- uh, insurance, uh, insur- life insurance in the in the in the favelas. It's hard to imagine this. It's hard to imagine what this means. I don't know if it's going to work. But I think it's very risky, even even crazy. But I think when I saw this, I could say that this could be one of the the most revolutionary form of another. Not, not that we did a revolution in the in the 70s, but to change the thinking that the the dwellers in the slum dwellers um, they that they have a life that is worthwhile and that they could have life insurance and this can change the thinking of the banks with regards to the the favelas and what Rio has with regards to the favelas. I'm going to conclude. Um, When I'm going to do uh, research at present, I found exactly that which I looked for. I, I, I doubt it. And so I need to have some surprises. If I'm not being surprised, then something is wrong. This is what you've taught me. Thank you very much. Sylvia, I think that after listening to you, something that we can for sure say and know is that researchers are engaged. They engage. And I love that phrase that you said, that uh, when you were there, you said to the translators, leave it to me. We are researchers. We can translate ourselves. Yeah, that's exactly what, what researchers do. Our research brings diagnostics. I'm not trying to make a, a, a summary, but I'd just like to point some things that can then also be feeding into our debate, because as also Sandra's team know, our research brings knowledge, brings solutions, And they also not only produce knowledge, but they mobilize knowledge. And that's something that has been very important that has been pointed out in several of the presentations and also in the videos. Um, I like that part that it is everything is possible when you are really under the will of change, especially when you are fighting and then changing prejudices. I, I, the phrase that was first in the, in the movies uh, that said, change um, a stigma for charisma. It's, it's so powerful. So, well, now we go to Paul Heritage. He's a professor of drama and performance, director of People's Palace Projects. He is based at Queen Mary, University of London, an international associate at the Young Vic. In 2004, he was made a knight of the Order of Rio Branco by the Brazilian government. For over two decades, he created arts-based prison projects in Britain and Brazil, reaching tens of thousands of prisoners, guards, and their families. As a producer, he has worked with major UK arts institutions to bring leading Brazilian companies to British audiences, including Grupo Galpao, Grupo Piolin, Afro Rigay, and Nos do Morro. And uh, some of them had appeared in Shakespeare's Globo Teatro in the Barbican. 
and Royal Shakespeare Company. In 2006, he set up the ongoing Favela to the World program, a partnership between People's Palace Projects, Grupo Cultural Afro Reggae, and a range of UK partners. In collaboration with the Young's Vic, he created Amazonia, a year-long performance project involving hundreds of participants and thousands of spectators in London and the Amazon region. Thank you. Well, how to follow three speakers like that, but I'm not worried because I've spent so long following Fejal and Camilla and particularly Sylvia. I'm sort of a follower of Sylvia Hamas, so that's fine as far as I'm concerned. Um, uh, Sandra, thank you so much for inviting us. Thank you so much for doing this research. I'm going to try and talk a bit about how the projects that Pilar has mentioned briefly in terms of transferring social technologies, art and culture from Brazil to, to the UK context, which Camilla described so movingly, intelligently, and also terrifyingly in the way in which she said, terrifying not because of what she does, terrifying because of what we don't do. Sandra says, uh, asked us, uh, of very positive end to, to her presentation saying Rio's model is transferable. I suppose I'm here to say, is it? <laughs> and if it is, what is it that we're transferring and, and how are we doing it? How far have we got, for example, since the first meeting I had with Afro Reggae, which was in 1998, thanks to the British Council and UNESCO, we got together to organise an event called... Um, Mudança de Sena, Changing the Sea, at the Hotel Gloria and Teatro Gloria in Rio. Those of you who know Rio will know that it's a symbolic space to do anything about change and culture. And when I was thinking about today and thinking, oh my goodness, it's extraordinary, 12 years later, of course, we're still talking the same things we need to. I'm just going back and reminding myself, and I've completely forgotten, I remember that night, because I remember Nostromojo and... I invited them to Teatro Gloria to do this grand gala opening. What I forgot when I read the programme again was that the person who introduced it was Pedro Cardoso, who's probably Brazil's leading comic actor from Global Television. Uh, the speakers were Francis, Francois Vefort, the Minister of Culture, uh, Benedita da Silva, the Vice Governor of Rio, Elena Severo, the Secretary of Culture for Rio, and Viviane Serna. Uh, the director of the Institute of Art and Senna that supports so many of these projects. And I look back to 98 to think how far we've come. And then, of course, Afro Reggae came on stage and I forgot that the Minister of Culture and all that lot have been there. And all I remember now is the, the 12 years since that moment that has inspired us all on this journey from People's Palace Projects through with all these groups. But in fact, of course, what's important and has been said, I think, in so many different ways is these incredible partnerships that Afroregi and Kufa and so many of the other groups have managed to establish. The fact that the Minister of Culture was there on that stage, from a very different sort of politics from the current government, the fact the Secretary of Culture was there, the Vice Governor was there, is to a certain extent a part of the challenge back to us in the UK. Are we doing, making those sort of connections? In many ways, since 2006 when we've been engaged in this project called From the Favela to the World, where we've made and another project called Points of Contact, which is a project 
uh, funded by the Ministry of Culture in Brazil and the DCMS, the Department of Culture, Media and Sport here, to look at a policy exchange in this area of the social technologies of the arts, bringing people, exchanging ideas. We've done a lot of the connections to Brazil. I sort of like to think over the last six years, we've started to create those dialogues. I'm more worried that we haven't created the same dialogues for ourselves sometimes in this country. That uh, one of the things that we, I think has been so extraordinary has been to, and what the research brings out so beautifully from Sandra and her team, is how institutionally Kufa and Afro Reggae operate. When I look at the research, I think this is an institutional challenge to us. I loved your diagram. We had the, the academics and the artists and the, the academics and the NGOs and the and the financers, and it does seem in your research you've found a sort of perfect circle around that. And it's that which we still lack, I think. When I look at that research, I think, fantastic. And then I think, who do I pass it to in this country? And Asadra knows, and Falan knows. I spent most of my time since we did the event in September in Rio going, you've got to read this stuff, you've got to think about this. But I'm not even sure who I know to be passing it on to. Who have we got to teach? Who have we got? Who needs to learn these lessons? And that's one thing that the phrase that's for me most clear and has been at the, the centre of our work since 2006, where we've been transferring these, trying to look at this knowledge transfer, has been what Sandra calls bottom-up arts organisations. Actually, find that phrase difficult in English, but but the inside-out nature of what these art projects have, have given us. The way in which these arts projects have emerged within communities and then gone out from them. The realisation that in the UK, for all sorts of very good reasons, our initiatives in this field tend to have a different dynamic, almost the opposite dynamic, of artists, of academics, going, uh, and of activists, going from outside into these, into these communities, stimulating activities which will then hopefully bring about change. That model has failed. Pilar said in her introduction that so much of the discussion of this, in this area is about failed models, what works, that constant, almost self-feeding uh, frenzy around this field. What works? What are we going to do? What can we do? Whereas, in fact, what, of course, we meet with Afro-Reggae and Kufa and the other organisations like Mosmore is this incredible optimism, positive nature of their coming out and showing us what they're actually already achieving. The uh, emphasis in the research, which is on identities, therefore, is something that's very challenging to us in the, in the UK model, because so often the identities of the agents of change is already dictated around the artist who's not a part of that community. It's interesting when we did the first event at the Barbican, when we took Afro Reggae to the Barbican and played on the main stage of the Barbican, I have to add, declare, I'm a producer of Afro Reggae, so I've suffered more than anyone what, <laughs> what um, Sylvia was talking about. These are not easy things to achieve, to produce Afro Reggae on the main stage of the Barbican. But Camilla was there. Why was Camilla there at that first debate? Because there wasn't anyone else, really, in the UK seemed to bring into that discussion. Of course, the Barbican itself staged it. That's what's so fantastic. We'd learnt with Afro Reggae, you've got to have those big partners. That's what Kufa and Afro Reggae do. They have the best partners. They bring them together. But most of the projects, the arts projects, as Camilla knows in this country, 
are very well structured, very well done, but are arts projects that go into things and don't come out. So when we think about what are we transferring, is it Afro-Reggae's drumming? Is it uh, Kufa's uh, amazing work in audiovisual, in hip-hop, in rap, in all those things that, Afro- that Kufa do? It can't just be that, but what is it? And is that actually transferable? So we set up another project, which we've been running for the last three years, called um, Cultural Warriors, which has been a project where we've been working with Afro-Reggae, working with organisations in Manchester, Newcastle, Liverpool, Salisbury, and in London, working with young people who are already working from those communities, who are with these arts organisations, trying to put them into contact with people like Fijal and people from Afro-Reggae and Kufa to think about what they can do and how they can be leaders within their own communities through their artworks. To try and... Faustini, who's uh, known to a lot of the people from Rio, who runs a project uh, uh, based in the peripheries, looking at the culture of the peripheries. Faustini has just won the Gulbenkian Prize, the largest art prize in the world, for transferring his technologies here to the UK. Faustini always says that what he's trying to do is try and get rid of people like me (laughs) and try and get rid of people like himself, the people that actually stand in the way of young people achieving things. And I think that has been a challenge to the UK, to think about our art structures, which are so extraordinary. I'm not going to degrade them. We have some of the best arts infrastructures set up after the Second World War that are a model for so much good action. But when we do the points of contact programme, when we have people from the Ministry of Culture in Brazil, when we have the people from Centro Cultural Bank of Brazil, when we have Celso Ataigi here, talking with our policymakers, what do they say to us? Since John Maynard Keynes, we might mention his name as he's and we're in the LSE, set up the Arts Council. We've set up great art structures. We've got great arts policy. But where is our cultural policy? What have we done to actually stimulate the cultural policy that we will need to face these social crises? And many of us think what the dialogue that I, we've been trying to do with People's Palace Projects through with these institutions has been to think more about the needs of a cultural policy with artists and with arts institutions and less perhaps about some of those arts issues. I do have issues with Sandra's research as you know that art tends to get put into with imagination and dreaming and not to be a sort of separate and act social activity in itself. But what's so fantastic about what uh, they've done within this research to reflect that way in which the arts work has to be part of those social mixed cultural uh, identities. Once it's separated out, which is a result of all sorts of forces, then you're never going to find, perhaps you're not going to find what Kufa and Afaregi really do. Perhaps you'll lose the essence of it. And I don't want to, uh, I don't want to, I think this research is incredible in terms of what uh, it does in terms of Afaregi and Kufa. What's been extraordinary has been also within our points of contact programme, has to be able to work with, as you mentioned, the, the quadrilla groups from Acre, the poetry groups from Sao Paulo, from the um, uh, dance groups from Bahia, to see that time and again, when you go back to these arts projects, it's actually the same features that you're looking at, that it's about communities that are self-organising around arts and cultural activities, and that that is where the change... It's in that that the change is happening. 
Sandra, in the film, somebody talked about telling their stories, how extraordinary it is that so much of what the work that Afro-Regan Cooper does is based in people like Fajal, people like Celso, people like Envy Bill, being able to tell their stories. And a really crucial thing that you can only see it actually there in the room is to be able to look into their eyes. Junior and Fejal have said to me in the past, do you know the protagonists in these young people's lives? We know that Camilla does. She knows the protagonists in those people's young people's lives. So many of us as artists working in these situations cannot look in the eyes of the other and know those protagonists. That is one of the things I think that they have brought to us, to tell their stories, to look into those eyes and know who those people are and what they face and what they fear and to give them that wonderful word you use, the courage, the courage to be able to, to make change. I think that uh, it's, those, it's those, facility, those features that we've seen in, in, uh, across, the, across the time where we've taken Afro-Regge into schools in Hackney, where we've taken Celso into a, pro, uh, into a project in Manchester with 13-year-olds creating their own manifestos. It's that moment when Celso can look into those young people's eyes and find something that he has experienced, that he knows, that makes those connections. But at the same time, we need those meetings with the policymakers. <laughs> we need the ministers, the secretaries of states. We need to find ways, and that's why I think the research is really leading us of making those connections. When the, you talk about crossing borders, I want to go back to that moment when Pedro Cardozo introduces, uh, <laughs> introduces Vefor and the rest. These guys, they cross borders in ways we cannot do. I did that with, we did that with Alanja when Alanja permitted us to work with Afro-Reggae and some of the great TV stars from Globo to make Af uh, Anthony Cleopatra on the border between two favelas in conflict. And it's because of the, of the, the capacity and the imagination to make these crossings that these moments, symbolic and real moments, happen. And that's the challenge back to us, whether we are able to cross those borders. And I want to cross just one, just to finish, across the border between me and the speaker and the audience. Um, we've had some incredible experiences on uh, cultural warriors, of taking young people from all sorts of different situations in, across the UK, out to Brazil, and also bringing, obviously, the Brazilians here. And two of them are with us today, Michael and Shagan. I'd just like to introduce you to, because these two guys, can you stand up, Michael and Shagan? I know this is really bad. I know this is really naughty. I shouldn't do it. Michael and Shagan. If you can sit down, it's okay. I know it's really embarrassing. They are actors, though. Uh, if you really want to hear what that knowledge transfer is about, if you really want to get it, then talk to these guys during lunch. Because they have been there. They have worked with the guys here. They've managed. They're making those transfers that we need to do on institutional policy levels. And although Shagan should be reading this himself, I'll just read you something he sent me. Uh, sent to us as a team only a couple of weeks ago. And it's been a while, it's been six months, eight months since they were last in Vigario Gerard. And what he wrote was, Afarege, Kufa, these organisations we met, they give us something that you feel. It becomes part of you. And when you begin to accept and understand its purpose, you will be open to receive all the rich, beautiful qualities it possesses. If I was to take one thing from my experience in Brazil, it would be not to be deterred by your environment. 
If there is no way through, create one. And no individual in our groups is bigger than the people you serve. In the future, I would like to collaborate with Afro-Reggae to produce a piece of work portraying our people in a decent light, showing the capability of change even when facing hardship in our communities in London. I'd like to send out a clear message that our communities here in London, regardless of the negatives, the class or social position, have the right to live and be shown opportunities to better their life. These are two guys that come, who are, have come through all sorts of very, very good arts projects in this country. Cardboard Citizens, National Youth Theatre, The Roundhouse, and they've now set up their own company called Playing On. They show both some of the problems we face, that people go in this country are much more likely to go through a range of projects, and that's what we're left with, some amazing projects. Whereas what, of course, these guys are giving us is these identities of life. So they are both our hope and also our challenge. So these guys, they will keep playing on. (laughs) They will keep whatever we do here as researchers going forward. Thank you. When I met Paul, he introduced himself as, as a fan of this research, Sandra. So, you see, but this is strange that you asked the first question when you were addressing the audience if really this knowledge is transferable. And then you use all the time to demonstrate that it, is, that it can be. Uh, it is true that we can't just be identifying good and best practices, but we have to be working on transferability. And that's where you also mentioned the importance of building public policies. But I would even underscore that you mentioned that art should be a, an element very well taken into consideration by policymakers. So that's for us in UNESCO to be working on. And, uh, and of course the, the issue that social cohesion, social inclusion can be built with, through the arts. That was a dimension that you put very well in your own words. And now I'm happy that we can have some debate because they said if you don't keep the time, then we won't have a debate. So we will have some time. And as some say, this is, uh, all these presentations have been food for thought. Since we are in a Brazilian context, let me tell you that this is caipirinha for thought. So with that, let's start our debate. Who wants to take the floor? Yes, they're in the back. Can you introduce yourself, please? And I'll stand up. Hello, I'm Anne Bonner, um, and I am doing some research at the moment exactly on what Paul's talking about, so I want to tell you about that first of all, which is I'm looking at um, arts organisations for the UK in 2040, and one of the things I'm very interested in hearing about is um, what's happening in Brazil. But going back to transferability, I also want to tell a story of Easter House in Glasgow 25 years ago. And Easter House in Glasgow 25 years ago was probably very like a favela in terms of severe, it was the most deprived area in Europe only. And it's not the most fantastic place now in terms of um, deprivation health. 
But I've worked with, because I've worked with a lot of arts organisations, with exactly, I'm not saying it's exactly the same as what's happening in Afro-Reggae, Afro but role models, people from Easter House, a guy from Easter House, Danny Dobby, who wanted to be a dancer and became a dancer and went back and engaged his community. And so they did an Easter House Arts Festival also and Cranhill Arts Project. And I worked with all of these organisations and what happened was that eventually public policy followed what was happening. So all that work was really happening, it was fantastic. But then public policy began to understand how terribly good it was. And so what they did was they built a palace. They built an art centre in Easter House. And what happened is, and I couldn't save this, I was brought to try and help this out, but um, the, the grassroots work disappeared. So on the one hand, it could be, and I'll be looking at this, you know, are these projects time-limited? Is the, the role of something like Afro-Reggae to be the catalyst and to be short-term? Or, and or, is there a danger of public policy and arts policy and policymakers coming in and destroying the very strength of the, of the grassroots. So I'm going to be, and please anybody at lunchtime come and talk to me um, who might want to be involved in this project. Um, but I'd like to just respond to what Paul said and respond to other things. And I would be interested in the views of the panel. And also I'm sharing some knowledge here. You know, don't, don't be complacent. You know, don't get too excited about public policy because public policy is only going to serve the mandate you know, of the time and the politicians of the time, actually the grassroots stuff, in, in my experience and my view, is probably more valuable. Thank you very much and for recalling that public policy has to be dynamic, otherwise we are really losing it. Uh, is there anybody, we will take several there in the, uh, in the back. In the back there is a hand and over here. So we will take several comments and then I will give the floor again and here also uh, in the front. And then we'll give the, the floor back to, to the panelists. Go ahead. Yes. Eu vou falar tarde, espero que depois da minha fala ninguém tenha pergunta. Mas eu tenho uma pergunta basicamente. I hope that after I speak, nobody has any question. I have a question for Silvia, because it's something that has to do with the Brazilian political system. It happens to everybody, but in Brazil it's very common when the government changes or president or governor or mayor, the, 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 everything changes. And apart from the NGOs that are working with private initiatives, they are used as a tool for public policies associated to the government. I understand there's a complementary work, but I get very worried about this involvement, not only because there's this alternate power and Brazil can throw projects in the garbage, but the government becomes a, that means they use the NGOs as a, a paint, so the, the money won't be checked. So I'm very, very worried about this. Not NGOs, but researchers as well, the third sector, they deserve some attention. In the back, there was another, I don't know who, do you have the mic already? Uh, hi. Um, my name's Pete. Uh, I work in the sport for development sector. Um, a lot of the uh, ideas here have been discussed. Uh, there are m remarkable synergies here. Um, now, I just wondered what uh, challenges you guys have come across 
that are similar to the challenges that we face in terms of being taken seriously, uh, in terms of the, uh, in the competing funding pot. You've got the World Bank and, to an extent, the UN and governments who often quite like the idea of these initiatives. Uh, they're very cuddly, they're, they're kind of very approachable, but often they're not taken seriously and often they don't get the funding that they deserve. Um, the project I, I work for is incredibly effective um, using boxing uh, for social development and we've had no government funding because the government don't really see it, take it seriously. Uh, but it, it is incredibly effective and the results are proven. So my, my question and kind of to, to you guys is that how do you come overcome those challenges in in terms of being taken seriously when, you know, some people don't, basically, yeah. Uh, he has a microphone and then the lady uh, in the back. Hello, uh, my name is Jimmy Greer. Um, I write research about Brazilian economy and society. Um, I thought perhaps with Camilla here and Paul we could ask a little bit about the Olympics and maybe post-Olympics or pre-Olympics um, any kind of strategies or advice you know you could put forward for Brazil and maybe um, Feijão and Silvia as suas expectativas better or Olimpíadas and you know um, maybe there's some kind of learning because you know we had issues before the Olympics they went quite well apparently um, but now we're in this kind of post-Olympics era Brazil Hemosóis um all the things that are happening in Rio around the Olympics is kind of quite a lot of interesting. Uh, could be some opportunities there to kind of think really strategically about how Rio can best London in this kind of area. The lady in the back, and there is another. Is it me? Gentleman here. Uh, yes, that's you. Eu não sei se falo em português. I don't know if I speak in English or in Portuguese. I think I speak in English just to um, speak to my peers in Brazil. Então, eu sou Cristina Becker, do British Council. Estou aqui em Londres. Cristina Becker, do British Council. Estou em Londres como coordinador de um programa chamado Transformer. É um programa de quatro anos que liga o Brasil ao UK. A Heritage é parte desse projeto. E o British Council, como ele disse, trabalha há muitos anos com this program and this program is going to link uh, the two countries in this question uh, that has been debated here I just wanted to raise to say how much a program of uh, art program can uh, deal with the uh, questions that are being raised here and also I'm here at lunchtime so you can talk to me and it's very enriching what is being presented here our perception is that uh, we found a great willingness of the uh, British institutions to work with Brazil uh, and a willingness of Brazil to work with the, U the UK and uh, how and through which channels and uh, how can we contribute uh, for this connection so that it's made uh, softly and, and nicely. So the program wants to deal with this dialogue, promote this dialogue and uh, to work with this exchange, to create something new. Brazil has much to do, to bring here in terms of all this innovation and creativity. As How can UK seize this and how can they have a dialogue? So thank you. We'll go to the speakers. 
Thank you. Um, my name's Greg, and I come from a charity called Albert and Friends Instant Circus. And we work uh, all over London in some of the most deprived communities in London with young people trying to promote self-esteem and trying to broaden horizons. Uh, uh, and my question is that um, it's quite hard to, to know. And what I've heard today from all of the speakers and from uh, your speech also has been really inspirational really uh, already has shown me what we can be doing in our work and what more we can be doing on the ground in terms of inspiring young people. But my question is uh, related to what you were talking about, Paul. How can we uh, be doing more to try and uh, affect policy or to try and demonstrate what we're doing? Because a lot of the times, I know personally, I don't speak the language of a policymaker. I don't know how to communicate what we're doing in an effective way. I don't know. I, I, I personally, I don't know that, and I'd love to know what you think we and the people doing work on the ground could be doing more to help them. Thank you very much. So we'll start with you because you have a direct question. Two minutes. Bem, primeiro sobre. Primeiro queria fazer um comentário first. I'd just like to make an observation. I always traveled a lot, and 10, 15 years ago, when I spoke in other places, I had to translate favelas, uh, slums, etc. But what happened is these groups put the word favela first in Brazil, when uh, the Central Unica de Favelas was created, that was shocking. Because favela, we didn't even speak the word favela when the Observ Observatório de Favelas was created, Observatory of Favelas was created. So we have to have this in mind, the role of these groups, because this helped to transform Brazil. And we arrive in some places and uh, my texts, when I speak, I don't translate the word favela any longer. I use favelas in French or in, uh, in English. So this is very important to have in mind. When you have a word to say something, uh, that's why what Sandra uh, is talking about uh, sociabilidades subterrânea, underground uh, sociabilities. So it took a long time for this to happen. Uh, not such a long time ago, we didn't even use the word favela to show these uh, multiple realities. As for the Olympic Games, I think it's very interesting what you're saying when I was speaking to, to Paul and Cezac in my center of studies with the Observatório de Favelas, we are planning uh, in April next year a seminar involving the young people from favelas to speak about our agenda for the Olympic Games. In Brazil, there are two main dangers. The Olympics become something completely touristic of a middle and uh, high class that goes to the Baja, and the, po and the popular sectors become against the Olympic Games. Many are against it because they're doing uh, reform. They're refurbishing the city, removing people from their, uh, their houses. So this mega events, World Cup and Olympic Games, seems something uh, alien, seems from the rich people, powerful people who are going to invade our city. If we do not start very quickly 
and we are already very delayed on this, to think in terms of who are the protagonists of the youth in the favelas in these mega events, we're going to incur the risk of losing the only opportunity that Rio de Janeiro has to produce integrations in areas that had never been integrated before. So our idea is, because a, a favela young person should think about what the agenda of the Olympics uh, should be. So um, Rio de Janeiro has too much to learn, a lot to learn from London. So in a way, uh, we don't know exactly how, but it managed to produce uh, beautiful, perfect Olympic Games in terms of visibility and professionalism, etc. But at the same time, Underneath, uh, they integrated people, and they had the participation of the young people of London. Paul used to tell me, the Olympic Games will only last a week, but what's most important is what comes before and what goes after. And one more word about the relations with these groups, between these groups and the government. I think it's also dangerous, but do what? Saying, boy, I don't have a position about PPPs. I think uh, they have been capable to a certain extent, much more than I had thought some years ago, they had been capable of maintaining a relation. Not part, They never uh, supported any political candidates. I don't know if Celso is going to speak this afternoon, but maybe he'll say that this is a principle or how do they manage this. But uh, I think we have to, uh, it's important to encourage to have the courage to support policies and not politicians. And it's been done much better than it has 10 years ago. What, what I would like people to think about is maybe when we do things, we lack um, a theoretical framework around it. And I want to take the example <laughs> of the arts. If you look at the arts as a pathway you will notice that the arts can be used therapeutically solely. Uh, and there are people who go and use the arts in order to work through their personal traumas. And then along the same path, the arts can be used as a, a kind of skill-based uh, activity, i.e. you can end up becoming an artist, uh, developing expertise in what you do and you can use the arts in terms of social communication, political narrative and so on. The point is when we do something, whether it's the Olympics, whether it's sports or whether it's the arts, what we've got to understand is that you can look at this activity and think one slice of that cake is the whole cake. Whereas actually what you need to be thinking about is that this activity called sports or the Olympics or the arts has a pathway going through it and depending on where you place your focus, you can either enhance or lose or diminish aspects of that pathway. So uh, I want to, to address this issue of uh, whether the involvement of the government uh, changes the nature of the art activity? The answer is yes, if you lose your the theoretical framework, 
and know if you really know what you're doing and you adhere to a theoretical framework, you have a robust clinical intellectual property with which to negotiate with the government your position. The problem becomes when you're weakened in your philosophical framework and the person who has the power with the money can then dictate what your activity needs to be. So if you look at the Olympics, what happened is that the government focused an enormous amount on what the Olympics would look like to the outside world and what kind of provision they were going to provide to facilitate the guests and the athletes. And there was a very weak uh, focus on uh, the legacy of the Olympics and also the build-up of the Olympics in relation to the young people on the back of which the Olympics was sold. It's very telling that Children for Kids Company were taken to the Olympics building site, promised that this was going to be their legacy and it's because of them the Olympics is happening, but when actually the Olympics opened there wasn't a single ticket available for these kids. And if you think about it, booking of the tickets, you had to have a credit card, you had to have enough money in advance in your bank account, you had to have access to the internet, and this is where no one thought about the Olympics from the perspective of the most disenfranchised and the poor. No one thought that one bottle of water costs a quarter of that individual's weekly budget, whole weekly budget of food in the ghettos of Britain. So that, I think, if you're wanting to move forward in anything you do, whether it's the sports, the arts, or the, you know, generally any project out there, what you need to seek out is the pathway of your philosophical framework and make sure that you look at that path from its beginning, middle, and end, and all paths are circular. Thank you very much. Eu falada do tema que me foi citado sobre as Olimpíadas, eu espero que o Brasil I spoke about the subject and I, I think that uh, I hope that Brazil will understand will learn from uh, the British experience uh, and to learn from the mistakes and they don't commit the same mistakes, they make the same mistakes, that they would leave uh, an inclusion, a legacy of inclusion, and that above all, that they um, make it better for the worker in, 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 in Rio, uh, who have worked uh, in um, refurbishing and revitalizing airports and highways and so on. I, w I would like for these opportunities to to come down to the people who are deprived in the city. As Camilla mentioned, uh, uh, what would be the form? Uh, the access of these um, deprived people, um, the, the young people especially. Be before the games, uh, there has been something that's been happening that has to do with uh, uh, employability. This the people that we managed to take away from crime. They, we managed to get some employment for the works at Maracanã, works in uh, work for people who are coming out of jail. There are more than 1,500 people for whom we um, who we um, managed to get work for, and 700 of these 
uh, were on the uh, on the border of marginality. They don't have crimes, and it was very difficult for them to get into the job market. And with the the employment secretariat, by means uh, working with them, we were able to get some employment for them. And what is really important important for it to be democratic, so that after the games, uh, life would be better so that we can have a better uh, bus, train, and uh, underground service. I, I, um, I like the underground service because uh, I, I, in 10 minutes, uh, I have to uh, wait 10 minutes for another uh, train to come along. But uh, for people in, in London who think that theirs is, uh, ba is bad, well, ours, uh, well, at least it works. And your, our games have to leave a legacy for the entire city for an inclusion of the resident of city uh, of Rio so they can feel benefited by it and this is what we hope for obrigada Feijão. paul the floor is yours um, very hard to bring those things together but i'd like to stop the phrase from the our friend at the back about taking taking it seriously it's a fantastic phrase in english and i think it, it does go to the heart of the problem one of our problems i think in the uk is that and this is um, I'm sure heretical because I don't actually think we take the arts seriously I know you're talking about sports and we can talk about that afterwards but uh, even though we have these great in arts, in arts infrastructures we take our arts for granted if you took away the arts from London tonight there are no galleries no theatres no anything I'm not sure what difference it would make I know that if you take the arts out of the communities that Celso works in. You take Afarelos or Kufa out of their communities. Those, that would be a destructurization of those societies. That wouldn't make the same difference if we closed down the National Theatre and the National Gallery. That's, I don't know if that's good or bad because I actually quite like the fact that Britain has hospitals and schools and other things that sustain its society. But what we're looking at is something where the arts are taken and, and sports and these cultural activities are taken very seriously indeed. And that's what we've been learning from these organisations. When you talk about public policy, I'm absolutely fascinated by that because I remember one of the first things I did with, uh, after Camilla worked with us, uh, gave an inspirational talk again with Afro Reggae, I took Celio Torino. Uh, to visit Kids Company. Again, because there's so few things I could take somebody who's the Secretary of Cultural Citizenship at the Ministry of Culture, a man who'd invented one of the most extraordinary pieces of public policy in, in the arts, the, the Pontici Cultura programme. What was I going to show him here in the UK was to show him Kids Company. I do believe these dialogues with public policymakers are really important because I, I think one of the things that we need to discover is that we don't need new public policies. We don't need new we don't need politicians or policymakers inventing new arts projects. What we need is a way in which our politicians and policymakers can understand the resources, the arts and cultural resources we have, and find better ways of using them. It's about, as Gilberto Gil, and God knows nobody knows better than Gilberto Gil, it's about the flux and flow of culture. What has been so extraordinary in Brazilian cultural policy, I think, is that you have found a way to make new connections within your own country across things. And that's something, as I said in my talk, I think we should 
we hope to learn from. And nowhere better, perhaps, than the Olympics to do that. I was the biggest cynic of them all, but I was actually, and I know all the arguments against, but I, and I am the person who said to Sylvia, it didn't happen in a week, by the way, the Olympics. It felt like it may have lost that. But it was a sort of five, nine-week period or whatever. Of course, it's about what's before and, of course, it's about after. But the symbolic level of those weeks were extraordinary. I do believe... I am now the positivist around this. I do believe that it can be an extraordinary experience for Rio because these, these, because these organisations know how to work on a symbolic level like nobody else. I think you can find the practical in the symbolic with it. And I think that uh, the, the, the projects we didn't do in London, I hope we can take out to Rio as, many as, as much of the projects we did. And Silver and I are joining forces for this seminar with the British Council we're going to be working in next April because actually the International Olympic Committee has their knowledge transferred to Brazil this November in which 30 minutes is going to be spent on culture. I like that. So we're doing something slightly bigger next April in which we're going to look at the ways in which uh, London could say what it didn't learn. And we're taking, we're going to, we brought a lot of Rio artists over here who were here occupying the city. And so they're going to be the ones talking back to the, the Rio people about what was good and what was bad around it. And just, to, just to, to finish, I think that the key word, hearing what everyone's talking about, is that word around negotiation. What these, what this, these finding ways you asked the really impossible questions about what more can we do to get the, the politicians there, to get the policymakers there, but as I say, it's, not, it's to, to find ways we can inspire them. And I do think, this may be easy to say, I do think it is to be taken seriously. You have got to be forming those partnerships and making those negotiations. Why are Afaregi and Nostromoho? Nostromoho, how do we get them taken seriously? We partnered them with the RSC and they performed two gentlemen of Rona at, at, at Stratford. That's something I learned from the way in which these guys work out there. That to, to be bold, to be courageous, to, to believe in this work at the level that when they come over here, we haven't taken them to, we've taken them to contact theatre, we've taken them to Newcastle to work with the lawnmowers, with uh, learning disabled company, but we've also put them on the main stage of the Barbican and the South Bank Centre of the RSC because that's where these guys deserve to be and that's the best match for them. And you mentioned something, it was very sweet you mentioned that I have this knighthood of the order of Rio Branco, but the best thing about that is that Rio Branco himself who it commemorates, was a great guy for negotiating borders and for negotiating and mediating these peaceful borders so that a nation could be a nation and that's what I remember when I remember Rio Branco and that's what I remember in Kufa and Afro Reggae We're almost running out of the allocated time, but however, if anybody has anything else that wants to say or they feel they will die, it's better that, okay, hold that, go ahead. <laughs> Don't die, please. <laughs> You'll need to be short, please. Thank you. My name is Golda El Khoury. I work with UNESCO. I work with Pilar in Paris, but also we collaborate with our colleagues in Brazil. I wasn't going to take the floor because we have a strong UNESCO presence, but the discussion around the uh, Olympics and mega events triggered my thoughts. Uh, we have worked a lot on uh, mega events. We've collaborated with IOC and with FIFA and others. 
And uh, once in an international event, we've spoken to the Brazilian government, as you will be hosting the next event. And one of the concerns of the government, I'm sorry to say it, it's the level of corruption. And while we can have a very good discourse about what we want to do, there are real risks, even that the government feels it cannot control, about how the event will go. And I thought, we've worked in UNESCO in our sport and youth program, to, and we've, worked, we've, we've talked to IOC, we've collaborated very closely with the government of South Africa to come up with an ethical charter for uh, global events and basically to address in it the issues that were raised. How we displace communities to build the stadiums, who benefits from the event, where do the profits go? What's left behind for people? And there were evaluation studies in, made in South Africa that I think brings lots of learning for, uh, for uh, Brazil. And I was thinking also that the experiences of uh, Kufa and Afro Reggae uh, are relevant for the organization of, uh, of, uh, the Olympics. Uh, of the Olympics. Because to me, what those two NGOs, I don't know if you call yourself NGOs, I know that you put in questions how NGOs work, uh, is uh, the power is by bringing all uh, stakeholders together. And I think there's a golden opportunity for Brazil to give a lesson to the whole world and to all the Olympics to follow, is to do, uh, bring this partnership together in organizing the uh, mega event, uh, the two events you 2014-2016. So it's not only look at the governments and how IOC and FIFA organize them, it's also take a leading role in, in staging it and developing maybe this charter and then working on transferability. This is a lesson also for the world. Thank you. Well, thank you, everybody. I think that it, it was magnificent how we could wrap in this conversation, in this debate, and in these uh, different speakers' speeches, the issue about addressing how social inclusion and social cohesion can be a driver, is a need, but can be a driver also for building better community with involvement of principal actors, youth, and those that for many times can be seen as the ones that need help. Well, no, they have the solution. It is not only that they need the help. And it was also interesting to see how, when speaking of arts, we came also to be speaking of sports. And both being so powerful tools to bring together communities, to bring together different um, actors in building uh, better societies and also in addressing policymakers. It, it, it's interesting that it resonated quite a lot, the need of, of bringing policymakers into the dialogue. And yes, and in UNESCO we'll be bringing policymakers for sports, for arts. But one thing that I just want to mention, because it's interesting to know when you are in the favelas or in many slums, and I'm sure that um, you have seen that quite often, Camila, is also how we forget about people with disabilities or people with special abilities. And we, we're talking about the, Paralymp the, the Olympics, but not as much as on the Paralympics. And I'm sure that it is a big challenge in the favelas and in the slums, how you don't, uh, how you finally get some positive action being mainstreamed, but do not forget the other populations that 
can't just go up all those stairs in the in the in the whole in the um, corridors in the favelas, etc. And uh, in this uh, proposal of looking at the legacy and looking at the importance of the work before the Olympic Games, that those vulnerable populations are not also left behind or left out, which is even worse. Thank you very much to all our panelists, to you, beautiful, wonderful audience, and let's go for lunch. I hope with some cachaça or caipirinhas, and, but if not, <laughs> but if not, piñas coladas, <laughs> do it, and we'll see you later on.